on our last episode about storytelling in the workplace. Emotion and imagination change people. Dr. Peter Jensen told us why stories work, and now another doctor is going to tell us how. We have this biological endowment that allows us to mirror and imitate others. Storytelling hitches a ride on that. That is Suzanne Keene, president of Scripps College and one of the foremost researchers on the subject of how stories affect human beings. Now, people are going to tell you stories all day today, but Suzanne is one of the few people who can tell you how those stories are changing you, even in small ways, and what it is about the stories you share that can change others. Stories have so much power, they can make more personal the meaning of problems or ideas that otherwise might seem rather remote. Suzanne Keene joins us at The Nexus. I'd love it, Suzanne, if you could define narrative empathy for us. Narrative empathy is the version of empathy that we feel when we share feelings with an imaginary being or a being who is just written about in a text. So we encounter a narrative and we have the sensation of sharing feelings, sharing a perspective, understanding the point of view, identifying with the character, with an intense feeling of recognition and emotional fusion, but there isn't actually another person there. It's just something that is conjured up in our minds by reading words that an author has put there. As consumers of stories, we instinctively create connections to the subjects of the stories we consume. That's exactly right. We bring ourselves, we bring our emotional dispositions and our memories and our imagination, and we contribute a lot as we read. What prompts that instinct to seek connection with the subject of stories, even if we can't see them or feel them or touch them? Human beings have a natural tendency to connect with other human beings and indeed with creatures that aren't humans. So non-human animals can elicit our strong feelings of affection. And as a species, we are dependent on one another and we have very strong tendencies to intersubjective connection with real people. So when we encounter stories, particularly stories that are about other people or about beings that we would feel sympathetic to, like horses or dogs, we give a lot of our imaginative work to being those characters. We can't really help it in a way. It's just something that we do almost automatically or instinctively when somebody starts telling us a story about another person, an active agent in a narrative, we just automatically start to populate in our mind the images of that person and that person's perspective and feelings. This feels like the right time to talk about mirror neurons. Perhaps you can unpack that for us. Mirror neurons are things that are inside of human beings' brains and bodies just like they're inside the brains and bodies of other creatures, primates and others. And what they are is they're a part of our nervous system that mirrors, as the name suggests, or echoes what is going on when we observe or even think about another person. So the famous example when mirror neurons were discovered in little monkeys was that one monkey saw another one pick something up and the neurons in the monkey who was not picking up the object fired just as if he were picking up the object too. So there was a mirroring in the onlooking monkey 
of what was going on in the other monkey's brain and body. So that mirror neurons are part of our biological endowment as humans, and it's part of what makes up what the neuroscientists call a shared manifold for intersubjectivity. It's part of how we relate to other people. It's part of how we understand more or less how other people are feeling or acting, what they're about to do. And it happens very swiftly and often unconsciously so that we're not aware that our brains are doing this, but it's part of how we understand other people in everyday encounters. So, for example, you yawn, I yawn. Great example. So that's an example of a kind of contagion from one person to another. We don't think about yawning when we see another person yawning. We just find ourselves spontaneously yawning. Most of the time, when mirror neurons are, are helping echo in ourselves what is being experienced by somebody else, we don't always go so far as to imitate the action, but it is the basis for imitation. And we think that the mirror neuron system is part of what's going on when coaches are showing athletes how they should be moving or improving their stances, that there's a lot of physical posturing and imitation that is facilitated by the fact that we have this biological endowment that allows us to mirror and imitate others. And storytelling can hijack that. Yeah, storytelling hitches a ride on this endowment. I mentioned before that when somebody just starts telling us a story and gives us somebody to sympathize with in that story. You know, the girl was toiling up the hill, hauling a bundle of firewood. It's hard for us not to instantly imagine a little girl going up a hill, dragging something. And for people with highly empathetic dispositions, those mirror neurons will start to set up a reaction where we can almost feel like we are that little girl, we're going up the hill, we know what it feels like to go up a hill, and we know what it feels like to be dragging something that's awkward or heavy or scratchy. And all of that immediately kicks in without our really being conscious of it, just as part of our experience of co-creating narrative as a listener. So just based on our experiences, human beings, we know that Emotion is a compelling, intrinsic motivator in ways that logic cannot. It is. And stories engage us on an emotional level. I think that's right. And I think one of the things that narratives do is they boil down the big subject or the big problem that the story is addressing, not presenting it in terms of big numbers and statistics and objects of analysis that are actually persuasive because they are about large groups of people or about large uh, long swaths of time in history, but rather they boil them down into usually individuals in very recognizable social circumstances and help us connect through that emotional tie to what it feels like to be inside that situation. And that's part of why stories have so much power. They can make more individual, make more personal the meaning of problems or ideas that otherwise might seem rather dry or remote to the person who is um, considering the topic. Now, I've heard lots of stories in my life that perhaps haven't moved me to act or emulate the subject, probably haven't even moved me at all in some cases. Is that just where the art comes in? It's such a great question and a great mystery because just as there's many people like you and me who can remember stories that moved them and stories that left them cold, that's totally normal. There's some people who very rarely respond with emotional 
attachment to any story. And then there's other people who are great empathizers who respond with emotional intensity to virtually any story, and it doesn't need to be artful for it to work. It's partly a question of individual disposition. People who have emotional connection and empathy at a high level in their disposition bring that. Those people, who include, by the way, many writers, many fiction writers or people like that, those people are going to have memorable, intense experiences of connection that may they may remember for their entire lives. They re may remember almost with the affection of a friend the characters that they met when they were children, when they were young readers. And that's a that's a beautiful thing. Suzanne, I'd love it if you could talk about curiosity, suspense, and surprise, and what those three things do to us during our experience of consuming or even sharing a story. Stories themselves possess three core emotional drivers independent of the content that is represented in the narrative. Just by virtue of being a story that puts related events one after another with a sense of causal relationship between those events and agents moving through the story world, just that alone creates opportunities for the reader to experience curiosity, what's going to happen next, surprise, that astonishing thing when the thing that happens next was something that you were not expecting at all, and suspense where you have to sort of sustain your interest with a sense of possibly as much as dread, sometimes as much more positively anticipation, but not knowing precisely what's going to be happening next. And those three core affects of narrativity are the drivers that keep us reading what makes stories interesting to us. If we all knew everything that was going to happen at the beginning of the story before we started reading and knew the end before we proceeded, I think many people would not bother at all. So curiosity, surprise, and suspense are the, the hooks that narrative itself, just as a toolkit, possesses. Suzanne, here at Nexus, we support clients with what I'll call practical or strategic storytelling, which is just to say it's storytelling with an intended purpose, be it illuminate an important lesson or inspire others to follow the example of a subject in a story. And it wouldn't be stretching the truth to say that some clients who engage us for this very subject, for this very thing, nonetheless still doubt the merit of storytelling. What would you say to persuade skeptics that there is some potential there for this to be useful to them? Narrative itself, because it draws most readers using the tools of curiosity, surprise, and suspense into story worlds where some people will strongly visualize, become immersed, or be transported, and others will just be mildly intrigued, curious about what happens, following along just to see how the plot turns out, that those tools actually allow you to plant in your reader's mind ideas that they may not have considered before, points of view and perspectives that they may not have inhabited before. It's a very powerful way to help people understand that there's potentially another point of view out there or many other points of view. Suzanne, this has been great. Thank you so much for talking to us. Well, you're very welcome. Now, I think you can probably tell from the fact that we've done an entire series about it that storytelling is something we're pretty passionate about here at Nexus. 
paraphrase Dr. Jensen, one of our guests in this series, if you're a leader looking to build up self-awareness and self-responsibility in your people, then there are few tools as effective as storytelling. If you want to simplify a complex concept or burnish your brand, as veteran storyteller Steve Pratt suggested in an earlier pod, then storytelling can help you do that. And to Suzanne Keen's point, if it's human nature to imagine ourselves in the same spot as the subject of any story, and in some cases instinctively emulate that subject, well, then maybe there's something instructive, something valuable you can share through a story. The point is this. For years, storytelling is something we left at home when we came to work, but not any longer. Today, it can be a tool, one that can make both your business and its culture better. It can be a values driver, a subject we're going to cover in our next episode. And we at Nexus are here to help you do that. Find us at www.nexuscommunications.com. That's N-E-X-U-S communications.com. And as always, I want you to tell others a story about our podcast. And in particular, how great it is or how illuminating. Not that I'm trying to put words in your mouth. But if you want to tell that story, then rate us or comment about us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever your podcast watering hole happens to be. The Nexus is produced by Alexa Paveo and hosted by me. I'm Chris Nelson, and I thank you for listening.